0: Reclaiming Identity, sharing stories of struggle, pride, and redemption in reconnecting with our heritage. Hi, I'm Drora. And I'm Dahlia, and we're bringing you Reclaiming Identity as part of the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Do you feel a part of the Jewish story? Is your family what pops up when people think
1: of Jews? At Reclaiming Identity, we celebrate and explore the greater Jewish experience. We encourage you to tell your story and take pride in your heritage as it is a part of
0: your identity. Listen to other people's stories, ask questions, be curious, and And reclaim your identity!
1: Hi, everyone. And welcome. Today, we have a little bit of a different kind of podcast. We're going to be introducing you to some of the people that work together with us at the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. And you're going to hear a little bit about their backgrounds, their heritage, and why they're involved. So we're excited today to be here with Dahlia Avram and our newest member, Yona. So everybody, in your own time, welcome them. We're excited to have them. Rather than me introducing everybody, we're going to have them each introduce themselves.
0: So why don't we start at across the table from me with Dahlia? Hi, uh, so I'm excited about this podcast. I'm Dahlia Russi-Diveroli. I work at the ASF Institute of Jewish Experience. Uh, you probably heard me on some of the podcasts. I uh, right now live in Jerusalem. I grew up in the US, in California, Ohio, New Jersey, New York. And um, now I'm excited to be talking with all of you here.
1: OK, we're over to Avram.
2: Hi, everyone. My name is Avram. Uh, I've been living in uh, Jerusalem for around uh, four and a half years now. Um, I moved from uh, Manchester in the UK. Uh, city that some people only know because of uh, Manchester United or other football links. I've been working with the ASF uh, for pretty much around the same time, maybe four years, I think. Uh, it's been very, very interesting, a lot of uh, learning uh, curves and um, mainly connecting with my uh, Sephardi heritage on my mother's side. My mother's Moroccan.
1: Okay, and Yona, a few sentences
3: too. I met Aliyah at a very early age, age nine, and been living on a moshav called In of 60 families and past 10 years I've been living in Jerusalem.
1: I'm going to go back to Avram first for a minute because we're going to go back to where we come from and you said you're from Manchester but that's not the whole story. Can you give us a little bit broader of where you're from?
2: Sure. Okay so uh, I, was, I was born in France in Strasbourg. Um, I grew up um, in a place called Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, we lived there for about eight years. Uh, my father uh, is originally from Latvia my mother is from Morocco and uh, they met in France. So there's quite a lot of history there. Each one has a story to tell and we've traveled a lot as a family as well. We lived in uh, Israel for a while and um, later on moved <coughs> to Manchester, uh, which is where I grew up. Uh, and then eventually I decided to move back basically to Israel. Uh, my father lived in Israel for about seven years. We've always talked about uh, going back and that was part of the natural path that I took. There's the, the the part of my background that I connect to the most is my, um, as it happens to be, is my Sephardi side, my mother's uh, Moroccan side. Um, we you know we used to do a lot of the hagim together in france and uh, a lot of the in hagim we we've, we've kept in the family and a lot of the connections that we had uh, to morocco was are kind of still there in many ways uh, let's say with food or uh with small things but day-to-day things which are very much a part of day-to-day life so i decided to take a a trip um kind of a trip back in history to my uh my family, uh, my mother's family, and go and visit the, the the places where they lived and the places where the, the places they moved around to. Um, pretty much all over Morocco. Uh, it was fascinating, uh, really, really uh, interesting to see, um, you know, where uh, Jews uh, that are not really talked about in many ways.
1: So that's how you came to us, Yona. Tell us how you, a little bit about your background. You said you moved to Israel at nine. Tell us a little bit where your family came from and how you, why you're involved with us.
3: Of course. Um, so both my parents are American. Uh, my mom's family is from Romania and Poland. And my dad is from Germany and Iraq. So basically, I grew up as like a regular uh, American Jew, which is most of the, ta- most of the time Ashkenazi. I went to a Chabad school, and not only did uh, was it Chabad, but we even learned how to read and write in Rashi. That was the first Hebrew that I learned, and so that was my upbringing. It was Rashi, Chabad, my family is very close to Kalibach. Then I made Aliyah when I was nine, at a very early age. And it's the first time I was in a class that was half Mizrahi, or Sephardi. And it was the first time meeting a culture that actually had a lot more in common with the way I looked, um, and I realized that I have an upbringing that I never really got to know that well. And so I grew up uh, with just my mother and brother. So my father was less in the picture, but I knew, know that my origins of being Iraqi came from him and I wanted to somehow explore it. And so the kids in my class, of course, are like, what are your origins? And it's not a question I really asked myself ever. And I said, uh, I have origins from Iraq. And they're like, oh my God so you need to join us. And basically, I joined a group of the kids that were like the Mizrahi kids, and they talk, taught me about the slichot where they do it for a whole entire month, and I joined them in the mornings, and I was learning traditions and going to their houses. And I fell in love with this very warm, loving embrace that I haven't really uh, experienced or known about it before, and I related to, and I understood that this was, I guess, the key of the opening of um, what really made me want to understand and study more about... Mizrahi Judaism and uh, of my own roots
1: and that's what you're studying now
3: and exactly Uh, so therefore life brought me to where I am today and I am a Hebrew student studying Middle Eastern Islam and Jewish studies and I was looking for some way to kind of um, push forward my purpose in my um, learning and exploring and Thank God, uh, social media, I was just going through Instagram. And I was trying to find a good job that would suit my passion. And I wrote in just like the hashtags that you have in the search and Instagram, Middle East Jews. I was like, let's see what see pops hashtags up.
1: Hashtags do work.
3: <laughs> so I've always been told that they don't, but I wanted to give it a try anyways. And all of a sudden, I see your page pop up. And I look at um, all the posts that were made. I open my own page too. Um, and my posts are very, very similar. I was like, oh my God, if I could like, just join this amazing uh, group, this institution, then maybe this could be my way forward to going through, towards my goal.
1: Well, we're really glad that you did. And everybody watch out because things are going to be evolving even more. So we're excited to have you join. And Dahlia, you were also raised in America and kind of came to your other roots a little later. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, yeah, so my roots are half Ashkenazi and uh, half Yemenite. When I grew up in the States, I grew up only in Ashkenazi schools, Ashkenazi synagogues. Uh, I mean, I could fit in, there was no reason not to, that's half of my heritage. Uh, And for some reason, I didn't fully fit in. Uh, That reason might be the way that I look. And I was always singled out for that uh, reason, being a little bit darker skin, darker hair. Um, curlier hair I was always singled out so it wasn't that I necessarily always connected to that part my uh, Yemenite family was in Israel and I was in the States so it was a little bit more difficult I didn't know that much about it I just knew very very basics and in high school I sort of decided that well, if everyone's saying that this is what I am, then I should probably explore what that means. And I started exploring it a bit more. From prayers that I started uh, praying from the Nosach, that's Yemenite, uh, trying to understand um, more of the different foods, uh, just exploring it a little bit, Deeper than what I had, and I didn't really have many sources for that. Uh, the school wasn't providing me the sources to explore that part of my identity. My mother and uh, my Yemenite family uh, helped me explore that deeper. Your Ashkenazi mother. My Ashkenazi mother, and that's how it sort of evolved. When I came to Israel, as opposed to when I was in America and I was the Yemenite Jew or the Sfardi more accurately, inaccurately, according to uh, the surroundings. When I came to Israel, I looked the part, but I didn't know enough. And Yemenites who grew up in Israel knew a lot more than me, and I felt very Ashkenazi. So uh, it led me to dig even deeper. That's basically how I developed my identity and my uh, connection to my heritage. And ultimately, that brought me to the ASF, uh, there are obviously other things along the way, but uh, that's that's ultimately how I got here. To go back, Yona, to what you were saying about the uh, Chabad, and you were learning the Rashi script, which is a misnomer—the Rashi script—and actually, it probably, without you knowing, connected you even to your to your Mizrahi roots, because Jews in certain lands would be writing in that script, their Judeo Arabic, and and. Rashi script we associate just with Rashi, but it was actually part of those uh, Communities too. So somehow you were you were connected back there.
3: You know, I'm actually finding that out right now So that's (laughs) amazing to know too because I felt like such an Ashkenazi because I I came to Israel and my classmates No one knew how to read it like they're getting tested learning about about it a bit But that was what I knew. So thank you for (laughs) also. uh, I'm learning every day
2: as someone who's married to uh, someone from a Sephardi background, not Sephardi Yemenite, Yemenite. Sorry, <laughs> um, and it, uh, whose children uh, had a uh, Yemenite heritage. Um, how, how, how was your interaction with other people, Were other parents, different in America?
1: So for me in America, all I had to do was listen to my kids mm-hmm. having the prejudice against them. Right.
2: Did you, it, did you it, see it, anything from school, or did you see anything?
1: No, they just didn't have their heritage there, and that was a big part right. of it. Okay. Which is. But I had started integrating it into my teaching even before I had kids. I mean, Mm. the first education award that I got was for the wonderful world of Jews, which kind of talked about Persian Jews and Yemenite Mm. Jews. And it was a whole big kit there for teachers. So it's not just because I'm married to Yemenite. I think this is important. I think Mm. that this is part of our heritage, and that's why we call it the Jewish experience.
2: Uh, with your heritage, do you feel like it's very important to pass it on to your children and to, to pass on them and things like that? And how does that work?
0: I think that it has to come naturally and not uh, sort of forced of like, sit down and listen. Uh, more like, okay, well, we're eating this because that's what we're eating, not because... Um, I want you now to explore your heritage. Because right now I have a son and not a daughter, I think it's a little bit different and some of the things that would be passed on maybe would be passed on from my husband, uh, who is also interested in passing on uh, his heritage. So I would love it if uh, he would learn the Ashkenazi Trap and, um, and go to the Mori for uh, the Yemenite one, but I think it's more likely that my husband will just teach him uh, the Italian way of reading, and that's because that's what he does. And right. they're they're both um, in that same sort of position. Uh, for myself, I would try and pass it on with foods, just like what we make for Shabbat, and just exposure to to his great grandparents, to his grandparents, to whoever carries on that heritage in whatever way, whether it's telling stories, whether uh, it's um, making something special uh, for a certain holiday. uh, That's that's how I sort of see it. But again, it's a little different because I think he's going to get a lot of his heritage uh, from from my husband Mm -hmm. um, just through the synagogue.
2: Do you feel that uh, generally speaking in Israel, Because there is a lot of uh, mixture when it comes to Sephardi and Ashkenazi backgrounds. So do you feel that um, a lot of the traditions are being kept by people our age, let's say, or are things disappearing?
0: That's a very good question. I think that there is a sort of... Renaissance, or it could just be the types of people that I'm friends with, uh, which also makes sense, you connect with people who want to be part of their heritage. But I have seen uh, and spoken to people who are more or less involved uh, with rediscovering their heritage and seeing how that plays out in their everyday life. Uh, So I, I know somebody who probably i know more about moroccan jewelry than he does but and he's moroccan uh but he makes uh kube and he makes stuff for shabbat i haven't ever been with him for shabbat so i don't know but like he can't tell you where his family is Mm. from in morocco so i think there are people who are connecting in in different ways but from the people that i know they're trying to rediscover what maybe their parents Mm. sort of like uh Wanted to forget.
2: Recently, we decided to, uh, for let's say for Havdalah, we decided to use the melody that my wife's grandparents used to sing to her when she was when she was a child. She was like six or seven years old, and they used to visit their grandparents, and um, kind of that's been re-introduced um, into the uh, weekly uh, Shabbat uh, melodies. So. Um, so in my opinion, I think things like that, small things that you wouldn't necessarily keep or pass on um, probably are the most important things rather than taking on a huge load of things and like saying, you know, we have to do this because it's, you know, what's supposed to be done. Right. It's what you like. I mean, it's to me, this is a personal thing, but it's what you um, it's what you enjoy doing and you feel that's really important to you specifically that really gets passed on in a, in a good way. What do you think about that? Right? I
3: really find... Um, the way that he's keeping his culture is one of the most beautiful ways there are. I mean, many people, some connect to history, some don't, but it seems like your friend. friends. So he's Moroccan and doesn't know exactly places or names, but then again, he is living that culture. And that's the beauty. And I think one of the most important uh, things when it comes to basically keeping culture is those small traditions that you don't even think about, like making kube. It's like, it's, I guess, the 101 of how to be a Moroccan in some ways. And there's so much pride in just doing that. So when I found out that agha'is is also an Iraqi food, it's basically like kind of like a hamburger inside of a pita with a few spices. Um, But uh, as an officer in the army, so what I would do once every other week, I would make sure that we would have small barbecue. And agha'is became the main food of uh, my soldiers. And Mm -hmm. it was like really fun because also a lot of them are from Mizrahi background and they also were like, oh my god, like my grandmother made this, Mm. na-na-na, and all of a sudden all my soldiers also know how to basically make this food as well, and I found that like uh, a really big um, upbringing. How about you? Do you have any foods?
2: Uh, Of course, yeah. Well, first of all, my my mother used to make uh, something called dafina every week. Uh, When she married my father, she decided to make it kind of more, kind of give it a Ashkenazi twist. But then as time went by, she slowly but surely introduced more spices to give it (laughs) the real flavour that it needed and um, eventually we kind of got the real thing and uh, that's kind of what I'm used to now. When we go out for Shabbat to my wife's family or to my friends um, and their safari, then it's something I really look forward to and enjoy. We have Moroccan fish, obviously it's very well known. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, So my wife makes that really Shabbat.
0: Your wife is also Moroccan?
2: She is uh, half Moroccan. Her mother um, comes from a very old uh, Jerusalemite uh, family Mm -hmm. going back, I think, uh, five or six generations. And um, uh, they come from a family called uh, Musiano, which is like a Sfardi Tahor-like family. So kind of maybe... Going back a few generations, they come from Morocco as well, but I'm not sure.
1: So one of the things I think is really beautiful that we found is um, the foods, when you're talking about foods, foods or other traditions that parallel. So for example, my husband's family makes zalabia, which is fried dough. And then my father, my Hungarian father, walked in when my mother-in-law was making it and said, Oh, langos! And he went and he put garlic salt on it and they eat it with the harif, you know, they eat it with the spicy uh, with the either with the khilba or whatever some people eat it with honey, I'm not going to get into how everybody eats it but oh, it, it's the same, yeah exactly, politics of food because Dalia's husband is Italian, we found some of these parallels between the Yemenite um, nusach of prayer and the Italian and it's very strange because you wouldn't think there were these uh, and some of the, we couldn't find it in any other sidur
2: Are there any melodies which are similar, or no?
0: The melodies, I think. I mean, the church had its influence on the Italians, (laughs) and uh... (laughs) people (laughs) do (laughs) that Listen, when you go to the Great Synagogue in Rome, it looks like the Pope is there. It's
2: (laughs) not. (laughs) I know that Zedong, apparently. I I might be wrong, but uh, what I heard that Mao was um, was taken from an ancient Christian melody. I think it was a monk, an, originally a monk's melody or something like that. Mm. The ones that we know, they're like the most famous ones. So. When it comes to um, music, let's say, uh, does your husband, are there a lot of melodies that you recognize, generally speaking, from your husband's uh, nusach?
0: They're specifically Italian. From the way that they read the Torah to how they uh, sing the different pew team, it's, it's very different. So a lot of the tunes I recognize because he practices them at home and he uh, just hums them because he he always has them in his mind because he's always uh, every Shabbat he's uh, in another minyan leading so so that's that's also why I said before that I think that's how at least my son will uh, will carry on the heritage because he he lives it it's in it's in our home but I think it's also a bit of a difference which I guess is. None of us have that representation here. But when you lived in the community of your heritage, like in the home base, uh, like he lived in Italy, so he, he's not like carrying on something that his father taught him. Uh, he's carrying on what he lived as opposed to all, each of us, which I didn't live in Yemen. You didn't live in Morocco. You didn't live in Iraq. And we are we're all like secondhand, thirdhand uh, receiving these things. True, yeah. So there's a little bit of a different, I think, connection in that way. You yeah,
3: um, talking about, I guess, music, of course, I think that goes right along with food when it comes to connecting. And so I had this amazing experience when I was in Morocco. I was part of a group um, called Kivunim, where basically what they do, they take um, many students before college uh, to Israel for nine months. But during that time, they learn about different Jewish communities around the world. And the amazing part is that we fly to these communities. So... First of all, I experienced something amazing, which was that many of the students that did have Swarty or Moroccan backgrounds, they never actually reached it out. And then they started learning so much more about their own inheritance, trying to understand where they came from. And one was a- even able to visit his grandparents grave, uh, his grandfather's grave, which his own parents didn't actually have a chance to do that. And I found that amazing. but. When it comes to the music, so we were at a synagogue in a small city. That's actually a big city called Asawira, which is on the ocean. It's beautiful beautiful. and a lot of rich history of Jews there. And so we did Shabbat in one of the synagogues, and actually a few of the Muslims in the area they came and joined. And one of them, so he's actually a big figure there, but I can't state his name. But he was telling us how his his father's grandparents are Jews. Um, so he did know a bit and looked into his own heritage and about the Jewish community. And so while we were davening, I kind of pushed in this melody of a uh, Hashiveinu. goes, Hashiveinu avinu le-shalom. And all of a sudden I see all the Moroc- Moroccan Muslims clapping. Wow. And it seems like it's a tune that they know as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it's, it's a very, very known Mizrahi tune. Friday nights. I wasn't, yeah, for Friday nights, uh, right before you start the Shmona Yisrael prayers. And then they're clapping on. And at the end, they came up to me and was like, how do you know this melody? We've heard it so many times from the Jews that were here. And it's also on our own. And I was so surprised just to see how that connection was made. And their eyes just lit up from this small little melody. And it's not even talking about different Jews. This is between Jews and Muslims.
1: That's beautiful. And that's, yeah, we found a lot of the connection and a lot of the... Against anti Semitism, we've found because you can find these common cultural heritage, these common cult- cross cultural bonds, and we've done conferences on it, we've done talking on it. Dahlia lived it in college. You could explain that a little bit if you want. I mean, part of uh,
0: the way that I was connecting with my heritage through college was uh, connecting uh, in intercultural and interfaith uh, programming on campus, mm-hmm. and also by visiting these countries. So I was not part of Kivunim, but I was part of another program that took specifically um, Jews, Muslims, and Christians to the Middle East to experience it for themselves. And we were in Oman, we were in Saudi Arabia, we were in Jordan, and in Israel. And throughout, I i mean, I have a good friend from, from that experience who's Muslim, and we were sharing... Uh, experiences and she also told me you know like people are looking at you like why are you not covering your hair you're you look Muslim and I was like but I'm not like isn't that obvious uh and she 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 and I like were talking about the the strictness of of Saudi Arabia and and I was comparing it to the strictness of certain like um Haredi communities and when she came to Israel she was noticing all the things that um Let's say in Saudi Arabia, they go out of their way to make sure that the Muslims can do whatever they need to do religiously. And so here that they go out of their way so that Jews can do whatever they need to do religiously, like having a key that's um, um, manual for the doors in the hotels as opposed Mm -hmm. to a key card. And she was like, oh, that's so smart. And I didn't even need to tell her that that's why they had it. But she like was noticing these things. So uh, we found it was like a real way to... To connect, but it was also a way for me to connect to my grandmother because I don't think my grandmother had ever spoken about uh, Yemen. And when I told her what I had to wear when we were in Saudi Arabia, she said, "Oh yeah, we had to wear that all the time, every day when we went out." And I was like, "Oh, like I didn't know you remember what you had experienced uh, in Yemen." So it was um, it was it was an experience, yeah. I guess to connect for myself and also to connect with other with people of other religions from that that region.
1: And talking about that, I think there's a renaissance in the older generation. I mean, I see it in the immigrant families that originally the first generation didn't know how to relate to it. The second generation really didn't want to relate to it. And the third generation then kind of wants to connect to it and then they'll often talk to their grandparents so I mean it's the same thing on the other end with my grandfather who d- grandparents who didn't talk about the holocaust with their kids um and with me they opened up completely uh, not completely I'm sure they didn't tell me everything but uh the stories that they told and the uh, connections that they made and there were things there that my aunt and my mother would just say I, I never heard that <laughs> like that was something so and the same thing and I think since then uh people have started to write books and to tell the stories because you have this third generation or two and a half, depending on how you say it, um, coming back to that. So I don't know if you've found that
3: as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think it's generally you can see that in every culture, there's a kind of a reflex that happens when or religion or anywhere you see that there's a reflex that happens when people try and turn away from their background or past or family whatever it is and there's a reaction that comes because of that reaction a generation later or two generations later um, you can even see it in israel in some ways you know when it comes to people being maybe less connected with their uh, whatever background they had but you know two or three generations later they connect with being israeli but they also want to con- want to connect to something else um, whether it's their Moroccan heritage or even uh, their religious heritage. There was a resurgence in the 70s, people started becoming, um, you know, very religious, coming from very, very secular backgrounds, um, and, and it happens everywhere and you, you can just see it happening.
3: It's always hard to tell if it's like a me feeling because it's something that we all believe in. It's like basically kind of um, bringing to the table again the whole Mizrahi, Swari, um heritage, um, but then again, I do feel like in this generation right now, there has been a big revival, Renaissance of, uh, especially in Israel, when it comes to the whole idea of the Mizrahi uh, Judaism. And I wanted to hear your takes also, if you, if like, if I'm alone in this feeling or no, do more people feel right.
2: it? I think you're right, 100%. I think it's not just connected to the religious side. It's also connected to the cultural side that people have grown up in a Israeli bubble in many ways. And they feel that they need to connect to something else outside of the, let's say, Zionist dream, which is a whole different topic. But anyway, that's, I think, so people are looking back and saying, OK, my mother's from this, from this place. Or my, father's, my father's from this place. and. Um, it's and, interesting
1: when you say Israeli, it really sounds like you're saying Ashkenazi.
2: <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> ma- the culture is mainly Ashkenazi. That's the culture that was pushed forward that's the right you know, even though
1: definitely over 50 percent of Israelis exactly. Are not exactly yeah.
2: actually somewhere it's completely the opposite of what
3: you're saying now is mm-hmm. in the music industry I've checked it recently and mm-hmm. the top 40 of the list of uh, most like known singers in Israel
2: mm-hmm.
3: I think almost all of them are Mizorchi besides about like three or really? four wow. which is like Anna Zak, Ivar and and uh, Viv <laughs> Geffen She's um, not very Moroccan, is that? Yeah, no, no, these three are the Ashkenazi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole rest of the list, yeah. almost all from Sfaradi, I mean, yeah. Moroccan, Iraqi yeah.
2: background. Interesting, very
0: interesting. And now they're considered Israeli music and not Mizrahi music, because we did have a mm-hmm. podcast with someone who is a musician mm-hmm. and who was asked in school uh, about Israeli music. And when he gave... Uh, names of Mizrahi artists he said mm. no Israeli music mm. so there was a differentiation then and now yeah I think in the past 15 years or so things have sort of uh, I- Israeli has in, at least in the music industry has become also um, Mizrahi falls under that category of Israeli so yeah you're, I definitely feel that
1: or the other one we interviewed who couldn't get into her school choir because she did the in her, uh really? in her interview and now she's oh. Um, She's an opera singer, an internationally known opera singer.
2: Yeah, definitely in
3: Israeli music, there's been a big change. I even see it sometimes in Ashkenazi music where like in order to kind of show a different kind of uh, authentic uh, kind of uh, singing or voice whatever. So people are bringing in the Middle Eastern kind of music because we're we're starting to realize, you know what? We're living in the Middle East, so it's about time we wake up and smell the coffee because... (laughs) Okay. This is our life. It's what surrounds us, and of course, it's half of the country as well of people from Middle Eastern backgrounds. True.
0: Based on all of our backgrounds and where we came from, I'm wondering if you've ever felt imposter syndrome of like, well, I'm not really Iraqi, or I'm not really Moroccan, I'm not really Yemenite. Like, I'm just kind of like faking it.
3: I would say that I never felt that uh, experience, and the main reason is is because, like, most of the time, I'm in a uh, Ashkenazi background. But every time I did go visit Mizrahi backgrounds, I really did get a warm embrace. Just two weeks ago, I did. A, I went on a vacation with my girlfriend, and on Shabbat there was only Mizrahi shul in that area next to uh, Moshev Amirim. And then, like, I get in, and like, of course, I'm offered a seat straight away. And I look at the the teens that are there. So it's also really interesting. But like, they don't really have a code. Like, you're supposed to respect the Shabbat and wear like the beautiful Shabbat clothes. But then again. Most of the teens came in like ripped jeans and like they didn't look like they were properly um, prepared for Shabbat. But I saw them sitting next to their parents and their grandparents with this great respect. And just because I just see that respect and acceptance of just like who you are and not judging how you're dressed, it really never made me feel like an imposter and felt like I can just like really blend in no matter how I look or dress.
1: Did you feel that way on the other side? When you go into an Ashkenazi place,
3: so I love wearing lots of times also like these Hawaiian shirts, and so many times when I go into like a very Ashkenazi synagogue where everyone's wearing white and black, then of course <laughs> I get looked at a lot like, why is he wearing even a pink shirt or a shirt that's like a different color? And so I sometimes would feel uncomfortable, but of course I'd be like,
2: well, whatever.
3: Um, and then again, like at the Mizrahi side, I did always feel like a more warming, uh, warm embrace,
2: mm.
3: which is really interesting because like of course. I'm only a fourth um, Mizrahi, but then again, there is always a, a very deep connection with me um, towards
2: them. I still feel that, uh, you know, half of me is a Moroccan. My mother's Moroccan, so that's half of me, uh, and um, she's a first-generation Moroccan, um, uh, and I still feel a very strong connection to that. Uh, so I don't feel at all uh, like an imposter.
3: I don't feel like an imposter, but. I do sometimes bum out about myself knowing that I don't know their melodies enough and then it's like gosh I really have to like sit down download it to my phone and start like really getting to know these melodies a lot more because I wish to sing along and really be fully apart Uh, but I understand that I never really learned enough to understand
2: it
0: that's uh sort of where I feel the uh let's say imposter uh the if I, even if I'm praying from the same book that they're praying from I feel like I am not pronouncing it the same way as they are like I didn't grow up with that pronunciation so in that way like I've had that feeling of especially coming to Israel like I said when I was in the states like oh you know everything about it and I like no I know like three things about it uh, it's just it's three more things than you know uh, but in Israel like if you grew up in Roshayin like you clearly know a lot more about Yemenite heritage than than I do. Uh, so I've, I've felt that uh, like there were moments like that where I where I felt it. But uh, at the end of the day, um, I think like you, Yona. if somebody sees me, they're not going to question if I'm um, not Mizrahi like they I'm, I'm not I'm not Ashkenazi. Let's put it that way. Uh, so so I can I can fake it to a certain extent. And that's how like and I don't feel like I'm necessarily always faking it. Like I do know and I have um, uh, learned uh, in order so I'm not faking it. But uh, there are defi- there have definitely been points where I felt like, am I really, like, I probably know more about my Ashkenazi side. So like, I should just kind of stick to that.
1: Let's try to see what's your purpose here in as being part of the um, Institute of Jewish Experience. What do you want to make sure people know? Let's try to each sum it up with something important that we want to make sure people know and why we're doing this and, and we call it the institute of jewish experience because again it's not your heritage it's not somebody else's heritage it's our heritage and it's all part of the jewish world so i want to make sure that we all are part of that
3: um so one of the big things that i'm hoping to really happen and the reason why i joined this world is not only so that not only to like wake up people to the understanding of Mizrahi or different kind of heritage that's not Ashkenazi, but rather I also want people to have that pride in it. Because with the pride it's going to make more people with these backgrounds want to go and search their identity Mm -hmm. and basically relive things that were forgotten. Uh, I think there's so much beauty and so much more to Judaism that right now people do not know about. So my wish is really that people that are hearing this podcast are interested in this kind of world they would start reaching out and trying to maybe take a melody, take a food, um, connect, go visit the countries that their grandparents are from and really start because our past is also who we are today and it's going to be our future. Um, and I really think it's important to just connect uh, who we are in order like, to know ourselves. It's one of the most important things is really getting to know who we are. And the more we know who we are, it's the more the more capability we have to uh, moving forward.
1: I love that. As we say at the IJE, it's the future of our heritage. So I,
0: I would even expand upon that a little. Uh, that with the pride is it's not just when when we have the pride in our heritage, then other people respect it. It gives it legitimacy, like in in the face of other people. So I I think that it's important for all of us to be proud of our Mizrahi heritage, but it's also important that. Ashkenazim know that this heritage has a lot to offer mm-hmm. and when we uh, wear it with pride then they can see that as opposed to push it away because well if we're pushing it away then they can push it away. Uh, that's just something that I was picking up on as as you were talking but I think what I would uh, say my, myself is that this isn't like a call for everyone to go research everything about their heritage. Uh, everyone can connect in whatever way they want. And also, it's in no way saying to push away your Ashkenazi heritage, because I will make uh, Zelabia from my Yemenite side and Potato Kogol from my Ashkenazi side very proudly. Uh, I'm not trying to push one in, in the face of the other. I think it's important for everyone to, to, to kind of explore what Makes them feel comfortable with themselves in the space that they're in, because if you're in a space where you're a minority, uh, you might not want to explore it because of what other people think. But if it's if you feel that it's part of who you are, and if you there are parts of it that that make you feel more complete, then you should definitely go explore, it, even if you are a minority. So I think uh, the work that we do is is giving people resources. If they want it it's not trying to push it um in anyone's uh in anyone's face if they don't want it but this is available for whoever is exploring and uh doesn't know where to begin because they're in uh an environment where it's not accessible to them uh so that's that's what i would would have to say
3: i definitely agree um no for sure every person should feel Comfortable, and I think that's also what you're saying is a very big uh, importance, too. It's to create a space where things aren't just um, not known to others. Like, I want there to be more of an understanding, too, that uh, we know about different cultures. Like, along with all the research I'm doing now, the Mizrahi heritage, I'm never going to give up on gefilte fish. I know many people don't like it, but actually, I really do.
1: (laughs) We we eat gefilte fish with chilbe in our house. So, beautiful.
2: I will bounce off of what Delia uh, was saying. Um, I, I agree with you completely in that um, in some way that connects to uh, some of the work that I've been doing uh, at the IGE, which is uh, the work with the MOOCs, or the courses, um, where basically people have the opportunity to um, receive uh, a lot of information on their different backgrounds in a, um, you know, in a very informational way. Understandable way from various uh, teachers who are experts in each of their specific fields. You know, which, whichever path they choose to uh, to go down, they can really um, get a uh, a very deep look into their past and their history um, through um, through these uh, videos that we we created which were fascinating for me as well um, on a personal basis. But um, that's as opposed to um, going down, let's say a completely academic route to where, you know, um, it's for a very specific purpose. This is knowledge that should be and is available to everyone, um, which might not have been available in the past. You know, you can look on YouTube and find some videos here and there about uh, Persian Jews or, Uh, Yemenite Jews but you won't get a concise understandable uh, coherent um, course on the whole subject
1: I want to say thank you to all of you thank you for being part of this that we're on and also Moshe Singer who's not with us but uh, he's with us in spirit he's just in South Africa so can't be here with us. But uh, I'm excited to continue on this journey with all of you. So thank you for jumping along with us and being a part of this. And thank you all for following. And hopefully we will have many, many more discussions like these and different ones. If you want to be a part of it, please do reach out to us and we would love to hear your story as well.